Thank you, choir, and thank you to our musicians. Thank you, Dr. Long, and thank you to you uh, for singing as well. Um, let, me, let me turn this microphone on. Uh, well, as you know, uh, over the last few months, uh, we have been sort of slowly and methodically, which tends to be my way, uh, we've been slowly and methodically making our way through First John. Uh, and it's been my prayer all along the way that, that as we have wrestled um, with false teachers, with the, the Gnosticism that, that threatened uh, the early church, uh, as we have wrestled with the threat of the world that was real to them and it is real to us, um, and, and as we have considered our own pursuit of holiness, you know, how it is that we are to live out this, this faith uh, that Christ has left us. It's been my prayer that this has been an encouragement to you, that it has, you know, strengthened your faith, um, and that it has, as is John's stated purpose, given you assurance, uh, assurance of who you are and of where you stand with Christ. Uh, you know, John's goal here, uh, it is a very practical one. It's intended to affect and to shape and to transform every aspect of our lives, which is really the, the goal of Scripture as a whole, but, but we see it so clearly here in John. He, he wants his readers' lives to be changed by the truth that they know and the truth that they have heard. But having said all of that, uh, you know, I will acknowledge that, that my approach to these passages, uh, maybe due to, to all of these many years of theological training that are hopefully about to come to an end, um, my approach it may not always be or feel like it is the most practical one. Um, you know, I, I read these passages and there's these great uh, big issues, issues that, that get me excited, issues that I want to get you excited about, issues of theology, issues of foundational truth. Uh, and I feel like it's my call as your stated supply pastor to, to point all of these things out to you and to try to help us work through these things. Really, more than that, uh, I'm convinced that if we are going to apply Scripture properly, uh, if we're ever to get to the, the right practical application of it, then we have to do it within this greater story that Scripture is telling to us, okay? Um, what we have here is not 66 separate random books that have been sort of piecemealed together that we now can kind of take at our will uh, and just pick apart the way that we want to. No, what we have are 66 books that tell a story, a grand story. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's the story of God. It's the story of what He has done for us to redeem us through His Son. It's a story about His glory. It's a story about how we, as His people, can honor and glorify Him and be with Him forevermore. And so again, my, my point is that to get to the practical, you have to do it within the story. To, to say it another way, there is no practical, at least not biblical practical application, without the theology. Now to be sure, there's no theology without practical application. The two necessarily go together. 
And as I I try to wrap up this little jaunt that I've taken us in as a kind of pre-sermon sermon, I apologize for that, Uh, The challenge is a challenge to me, and it is a challenge to you. Uh, For me, the challenge is to strive to find ways to bring out the practical implications of these things, to, to make better points of application, so that when you leave this place and walk out those doors, you can say, hey, here is how God's Word applies to my heart and to my life. That's the challenge to me. The challenge to you is to do the hard work of seeing how the gospel, how this grand narrative is your story. How this grand narrative of what God is doing in Christ applies to you and how it does change everything. It transforms your life completely in practical, real ways. Apart from Christ... There is no practical, at least not any practical that's going to last. Not any practical that's going to be effective. And so again, my challenge to me and to you is is let's not get tired of hearing the, the good old story, right? Let's not grow cold to the good news of what Christ has done. Because without the good news, none of it means anything. I can stand up here and give you self-help until the cows come home. But without Christ, it's going to mean nothing. Okay? So we have, to, we have to stick them both together. And as we finally try to turn to our passage today, what we notice is that John here, he is going to give us a topic that is extremely theological, but is also extremely practical. He once again takes up this issue of real Christian love. And that's certainly something that that we need to address in our own lives. It's something that we need to address out in the world. It's something that we need to address as God's people. And before we we jump into this, let's read together 1 John Chapter 3, verses 10 through 24, just to get it before us, and then we'll try to work through it. So, beginning in verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder his brother? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, 
that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we do ask that you would take this truth, the truth of your word, a truth rooted in you and what you have done in Christ, and that you would apply it uh, so that we wouldn't just simply uh, gain knowledge today, uh, but so that we would go out and that we would be transformed uh, in every area of our lives. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let love rule. Um, well, by now, most of you know me well enough to know that, that throughout my day, and particularly uh, when I get to the part of my day where I begin to write sermons, uh, I have this, this constant stream of song lyrics just running through my brain. It is like a radio that is on all the time. And I'll confess to you that sometimes... Those lyrics are hymns, and sometimes they are praise songs, but more times than not, uh, they are lyrics from songs that I grew up singing when I was a kid. So Journey and, and Creedence Clearwater Revival and even some early 90s hip-hop songs like MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice, all these things are just constantly rolling around in my brain. Uh, but this week, some of you will take note that the, the song rolling around through my head uh, was the song that is the inspiration for our title, and it's a song by one Lenny Kravitz called We've Got to Let Love Rule. Now, quickly, for those not familiar with that song, I want to read to you just some of the lyrics. Uh, it says, Love is gentle as a rose, and love can conquer any war. It's time to stake a, take a stand. Brothers and sisters, join hands. And in the chorus, we've got to let love rule, We've got to let love rule. He goes on to say, Love transcends all space and time, and love can make a little child smile. Can't you see this won't go wrong? But we've got to be strong. We can't do it alone. We've got to let love rule. Now, as a teenager, that all sounded pretty good to me. Uh, and certainly as I looked out at the world, it seemed to be the truth that the world would get behind, right? They would say, hey, we just got to love one another, and we just got to kind of let each other... Uh, be who we want to be, and that's the way that we really love each other. Now, we're going to get back to that point in just a second, but even as you turn to Scripture, what we find is that the Bible really seems to get behind this idea, too, that, that we need to let love rule. After all, Jesus said that the world would know that we are his disciples. How? By the way that we love one another. Paul says that, that if we have not loved, we're just a noisy gong. We're, we're clanging cymbals. And then, of course, in, in this very book, in 1 John chapter 2 and in verses 7 through 11, uh, John gave his readers the, the commandment, the, the commandment that was old and new, the commandment that Jesus had given them from the beginning, a commandment to love one another. And so my point is, is clearly love is a central theme, maybe the central theme of the story that God is unfolding. The issue, of course, is, is what is that love really all about? What, what does that love really look like? Clearly, it is something different than what the world aspires to. You know, I don't know what Mr. Kravitz's intentions were with the song that he wrote, but I have a feeling, at least the way that the world interprets that, is far different than the way that the Bible 
would interpret that, right? In fact, you'll recall that that when we ended our sermon there in chapter 2 in verses 7 through 11, my last point, one that we didn't spend very much time on because I knew this was coming, uh, was to ask, what is Christian love? Practically, how do we work it out? Practically, what does it look like? Well, today we want to take that up again. Uh, John takes it up here. And we want to consider it at least just in a little more detail. You know, I I included verse 10 because it says there at the end, uh, no one is of God uh, who does not love his brothers. And one commentator says that these verses that are before us, they're just a commentary on verse 10. They're just a working out of what John is trying to say there on Christian brotherly love. And so again, our goal today is to consider what does it mean to really let love rule. As Christians, how do we do that? Particularly here, notice that he means this among the church. He means this among believers. Now, that's not to say that we are not to love other people, love non-believers, because we know that we are, right? Bradley reminded me yesterday at the Reformation party uh, of the, the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, that, that the... Uh, The fact that the man loved the Samaritan the way that he did would have been scandalous. The way that the the, the Samaritan loved the Jew would have been absolutely scandalous to them, right? That was an enemy. That was somebody that they never would have associated with in a million years. It was was about as far-fetched as it could have possibly been. But then Jesus turns around, and who does he love? He loves us, but he also loves Judas, right? He washes his feet. Uh, And so the point is, is we are to love our enemies. And so this is not an exclusion of that. But what John is pointing us to is that we are particularly supposed to love God's people well. We are particularly supposed to love the church well. And so again, the question is, what does that mean? So let's look at it together. The first thing that I want you to notice here in this passage uh, is that John identifies for us the enemy of love, the enemy of Christian love. And of course, it is hate. You see it there in verses 11 through 15. Now, recently, speaking of song lyrics, Sam and I, uh, we got to go see one of our favorite bands in concert, the Avett Brothers, and they sing a song called The Ballad of Love and Hate. And in that song, love and hate are personified. Love is a, a, a lady and hate is a man. And they are sort of in this relationship, but it's a strained relationship. Love has gone off on vacation. And while she's gone, hate has, has grown in his resentment and in his ill will towards love. And to make a long story short, uh, by the end of the story, they come back together. And love basically says to hate, I'm yours. We're, we're gonna, they reconcile. We're going to be together forever. Now, it's a great piece of songwriting. Like, it is a, it's a great song. It tells a great story. But I tell it to you, and I bring it up, because what I want, you to, want to point out to you is that it, it is not a song based in any sort of biblical reality. You know, it's common for us to say there's a fine line between love and hate. It's common for us to say that they are two sides of the same emotion. And maybe that's true, but here John reminds us that what they really are are mortal enemies. They are opposite sides. They are on own opposite sides. And hate, particularly, will do all it can 
to be rid of love. And we see that here in the example that John gives from Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel. Now, I know it's a story that's probably familiar to you, but just by way of summary, you remember that, that Cain is a worker of uh, livestock, Abel, no, put that back, I got that backwards. Cain is a worker of the field, Abel is a worker of livestock, and they both bring an offering to God, one, the produce of the, the first fruits, the other, uh, the firstborn from the flock, and the Lord accepts Abel's offering because the book of Hebrews says he brought it in faith. And Cain's he rejects because he brought it from a sinful heart uh, with wrong motives, right? Well, as we can expect, Cain becomes so angry, uh, so jealous of his brother that he eventually rises up and he kills his brother. And this is the point that, that John picks up on. And notice what he says. He says that Cain is a murderer, that he is from the evil one. How did he know that? How did he know that this wasn't just a, a bad moment in Cain's life? How, how could he say that, that he was from the evil one? Well, it's because, like the evil one, he was a murderer, and particularly a murderer of one who sought to please the Lord, one who sought to do righteousness. You know, the details of Cain and Abel's story are fairly scant, but there doesn't seem to be any evidence that Abel was the sort of guy that, that had this coming to him. Now, this wasn't like, say, Joseph. Now, look, Joseph, for all of his, most, the great majority of his life, he is a wonderful example to us of how we should live as Christians. But you know, at the beginning of his life, when he's running around with his multicolored coat on, the, the sign of his father's great love to him, and he's telling everybody about his dreams, dreams where he is going to rule over his brothers, and he's telling it to his brothers. He may not have had bad intentions in his heart, but it was not wise, right? We can, we can see why the brothers, even though it's not justification of what they did, we could see why they would get sort of mad about that that they would sort of want to get rid of this guy who's running around saying all of these things. Abel, a Abel, he simply sought to be righteous. He, he sought to do what God would have him to do, and his brother, who was from Satan, Satan who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning, killed him. He killed him because hate is rooted in the evil one. And it always seeks to snuff out godliness, Christian love. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's a great example, but it's not one that, that really applies to me because, you know, I'm no murderer. I hadn't killed anybody. I don't plan on killing anybody, but not so fast, my friends. Notice there in verse 15, like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, John is not content with just an outward obedience to God's law. Instead, he says there, everyone who hates his brother, inwardly, in your heart, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And notice, what are murderers? They have no eternal life abiding in them.
Now that leads us uh, to, to two very practical points. One, uh, hate and love, they are not compatible. That means, particularly within the church, uh, that there is no place for, for racism. There is no place for partiality. There is no place for a heart full of animosity towards someone else to persist. We can actually take that a step further and say there is no place for it in the Christian life, period. Those who hate their brother, he says, abide in death. This is a call for all of us to search our hearts. You know, how do you feel towards your fellow Christians? Let me ask you this. Why does it matter when Mr. Rodney or any of our guys that do mission for, Minute for Missions, why does it matter when they stand up here and they tell us about what's going on in, in Pakistan or China or wherever? What, what does that have to do with us? And according to John, it has everything to do with us, right? These are our brothers and sisters. These are people that we are to love. Certainly, we won't always get along with every Christian that we meet, and there may be those Christians that we like more than others. But there is no place for hate. Second, uh, this explains much of our interaction with the world. A world that is opposed to God. And he brings this up there in verse 13. He says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Now look, this is a complete shift in the way that we think about persecution. It's a complete shift in the way that we think about hardships and trials. John says that, that when those things come from the world to the church, it's not because we're doing things wrong, it's because we're doing things right. It's because we are following God the way that He calls us to follow Him. Now look, I'm not looking for persecution to come to us, but I do wonder if the reason why the church in so many places has experienced persecution and we in America have experienced very little of it is because we are more like the world than we are like the church that Christ died to make us be. Right? Jesus promises us, John does here too, that if we are living for him, that the world will hate us. Are we living for him? If, as we have said, these two sides are mortal enemies, then we should expect pushback, even murderous pushback from the world. Now, that's not a problem, because Christ has overcome the world. He is with us, and he will not leave us. It's not a problem, but it is the reality. So, we have the enemy of love, and the enemy of love is hate. Secondly, I want you to notice the example of Christian love that John gives us, and it is, of course, Jesus there in verses 16 through 18. As Christians, we know the one place to look to find real, true love on full display. And it's not in songs, it's not in movies, it's not even in our relationships or our marriages. No, the true place to find real love is where? It's in the incarnation. It's in a manger in Bethlehem. It is in a life lived perfectly to God's glory on behalf of someone else. And it is particularly at the cross where we see real Christian love. That is where He 
who, who existed with God for all of eternity, existed in the form of God. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. At the cross, it is where the Word made flesh was reviled and mocked and spit on, yet he did not revile or respond in kind. At the cross is where the maker and sustainer of all things was broken, where his blood was shed on our behalf, where he was cut off, deemed cursed, our curse, so that we might not have to be. And it is at the cross where he cried, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. At the cross where the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. Sheep who had gone their own way. Sheep who had wandered. Sheep who were stained and sinful and not worthy even of a second glance. Sheep whose voice were among the scoffers, right? Out there in the crowd yelling, crucify him. Jesus at the cross died to redeem those, to redeem us, me, you, sinners. John's point is that because we know that sort of love, eternal love, God's love, because we have experienced it, we now should be willing and ready. We are called to lay down our lives for our brothers, for those in the church, our brothers and sisters. Now again, you may be saying, and Ben has already pointed this out to us so well, you may be saying, hey, if the time comes, I'll be glad to lay down my life for my brother, but hopefully that time won't come. And so that, this is, I won't have to worry about that. But again, notice John's example is not an example of martyrdom. His example is not an example where somebody goes and lays down their life. He moves on and he says, if you see one of your brothers and they are in need, and you have the world's goods, and you pass them by, then you are just as guilty as one who does not lay down his life for those who are being murdered, right? This is a self-sacrificial love. Friends, how many of us, though we, we may not be called to lay down our lives, for somebody else. But, but how many of us today will see someone in need? How many of us today will see someone who needs a kind word? How many of us will have the opportunity to give of the excess that, that we have been given to a brother or sister in need? I suspect that it may be every single one of us. Laying down our lives is not merely dying for someone. But it is giving freely of ourselves as Christ gave freely to us. Christian love, again, if it is nothing else, at its core, it is self-sacrificing love. We don't have time to, to keep pursuing it. But think about what that means for the church. You know, we, we read in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 of how the church was, was giving to one another so freely, right? And it's, it's almost a scandalous way that they're giving to one another. Like, we can't even wrap our minds around it. Why were they doing that? 
Because they were loving as Christ had loved them. And why was God, why were so many coming in? Why were so many wanting to be a part of that? Because how could you not want to be a part of that sort of love? Friends, where the rubber meets the road of Christian love, it's this. Christian friendship. In your Christian marriages, can you, in the church, can you lay aside yourself and give to others freely? Does your pride, do your desires, will they allow you to do that? In Christ, John says that, that we must because he is our example. More than that, it is what he has done for us. And it's what he's working in our hearts through the power of his spirit. So, we have the enemy of love and his hate. We have the example of Christian love. It is Christ. And then finally in this passage, I want you to notice the result of Christian love. And by result, I mean the result for those who show Christian love. What is the result for us when we live this way? And the answer that John gives us is assurance. Assurance. When we love this way, we have assurance. And notice, it is an assurance that is greater than even our own hearts. And this is the, our final point. So I recognize that the final point is supposed to be quick and we're supposed to get through it. But friends, this, this may be the most glorious verse, one of the most in all of Scripture. You know, I'm a, I'm a baseball coach in my free time. Uh, and one of the things that, that we always say about baseball players is they are their own worst enemy most of the time. And that may be true of all athletes everywhere, but it's particularly true in a sport that is 85 to 90% mental, where you get out two out of every three times, where you are constantly dealing with failure. All the time, you're dealing with failure, ebbs and flows strikeouts, errors, all the time. And it gets in your head. And you get in your own head and you begin to doubt yourself and that's when things go bad. Well, friends, for me, and I'm sure this is true for many of you, I find the same thing to be true in my Christian life. Uh, to be sure, Satan and temptation are real and they play a large part in this. But often when it comes to my assurance, I am my own worst enemy. I get in my own head. I overthink it. And my heart, deceitful as it is, begins to condemn me. You know, maybe I am too sinful. Maybe I'm not where I should be. Maybe I do lack the faith that by now, surely after all of these years of walking with the Lord, I should have. You know, if I really knew Him then surely I wouldn't continue to find myself on the wrong side of sin. Yet the reality is, is I do. And so the doubts grow. And we wonder, do I really belong to Him? Am I really resting in Christ? Well, notice the assurance that we have. It's one that doesn't rest in me. It doesn't rest in my heart or my works. It doesn't rest in my opinion of myself. It's one that rests in God who is greater than my works. It's one who rests in God who is greater than my opinions. It's one who rests in God who is greater even than my own heart. In Him, 
and nowhere else is the assurance of what is true. I, I can't even find that here. I look to Him and He tells me what is true. He tells me the reality that even the smallest amount of faith, even faith that is one step forward and two steps back, any faith at all is a gift from Him. And those who have faith, they are the only ones who are able to please God. And those who have faith, who are looking to Christ, are saved, and they are saved indeed from now through all of eternity. We have assurance of what we know. And notice in this passage, I didn't tell you this at the beginning, but it's worth pointing out, that at least five different times in verse 14, 15, 16, 19, and 24, John says, this is what you know. This is what is true. And what is it? He says, this is who you are. And I realize we've had this conversation at every sermon that we've had in 1 John. But we've got to know it. It's foundational. You've got to know who you are. Even when your heart condemns you. If you're resting in Christ, you are a child of God. Not only that, but you know God's sure faithfulness. He says here, we know that He answers our prayers when we come seeking His will. He answers our prayers. We're confident in His goodness, in His mercy. We know, He says, thirdly, that in Christ we have passed from death to eternal life. We know that this is not the end. We know that there is an eternity awaiting us with our Savior. Uh, an eternity. Me and Bradley talked about this last night. Well, I'm getting us way off track here, but I'm going to do it anyway. There's this song by the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir that is amazing. Like it is bring you to tears kind of a deal. And we were talking about the fact that if, if here on earth there is a choir that can do that, imagine eternity. Imagine standing before Him at the very throne room of God and joining our voices to that great chorus and singing to Him. That's who we are. Eternity awaits us. And fourthly, He says, we know that we abide in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. Don't miss the, the, the triune nature of the way that John concludes this little section. It is the Father, it is the Son, and it is the Holy Spirit who we are abiding in, and He is abiding in us. In Christ, friends, objectively, this is what is true of those who are in Christ, and who through Him love one another. Our love is proof positive that we are resting in Him. If you want to know, am I a Christian today? How do you feel about your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you love them? Is God pushing you to love them more? John says there is assurance there. And so, why do we want to let love rule? One, it is the mark of all true Christians. The mark that we have experienced Christ and His love. Secondly, by loving His church well, we love Christ well. And then thirdly, it is a means that Jesus uses to give us sweet and confident assurance. And so may we, as His people,
people who are resting in Christ, may we be marked by real love for, for His church here, throughout time, throughout space, everywhere. May we love the brothers and sisters well as we pray together. Father God, uh, we are, are humbled uh, and, and so thankful uh, for your love for us. We, we don't love uh, you because we are, are able to do that uh, first, uh, but we love you because you have first loved us. You have shown us your love in Christ and what a love it is. And we thank you that we get to experience that in our hearts uh, and we get to rest in the depth of it, a depth that we're going to sing about in just a moment. Uh, and so, Lord, help us to, to do that, to look to Christ always. Uh, and, Lord, as we experience that love, uh, help us to share it uh, with uh, the whole world, but particularly with those that Christ died to save, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Or may it be a mark of your church, a mark of this church here in New Albany, uh, and may it give us that sweet assurance that we are in you and that you are in us, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let us all say amen as we respond and sing.